Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are so glad that you are able to catch us every week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Remember, if you ever miss an episode, you can find all of our past episodes by going to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast. We've got about 100 episodes there, so make sure to check them all out and subscribe so you never miss a future conversation. In today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Jones. Not the famous Jones, Dr. Jones from the movies Indiana, but another historian, Dr. Andrew Willard Jones, who has dug into the history of the relationship between church and state. And he'll share with us a little bit about how it can help us navigate our important political questions today. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about what happens at the Capitol in the final days and hours before the regular session comes to an end. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our Bricklayer segment, the most effective thing you can do before a session ends on Monday is to make sure your legislators hear you. So we'll tell you a little bit more about how you can do that. And listeners, if you ever have a great idea for one of our Bricklayer segments, ways that others might be able to start putting their faith into action, send us your ideas or maybe send us your questions for the mailbag segment. Shoot me an email. The email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can find us on any of the social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now blessed to be joined on the line by Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones. He is Assistant Professor and Director of the Catholic Studies Program at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Dr. Jones is the Executive Director of the St. Paul Center and also publisher of Emmaus Road Publishing. He holds a Ph.D. in Medieval History from St. Louis University and is an expert on the Church in the High Middle Ages. He's the author of Before Church and State, A Study of Social Order in the Sacramental Kingdom of St. Louis IX. And his newest book that will be out shortly is The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. Dr. Jones, it's great to speak with you today. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. As a historian, tell us about why it matters that we dig into the history and what history can tell us about and inform us about today's important and challenging political debates and questions. Wow, history. I mean, I, I guess the way I would begin trying to answer that is that history is us, <laughs> right? So it's like, so we can we can ask the question, who are human beings, and we can answer that question abstractly, right? We can answer it philosophically, theologically, with sort of propositions about our natures, those sorts of things, and those are all true and valuable. But at some point, when we ask the question, who are we? The answer is who we in fact have been, right? <laughs> so in the same sort of way as someone, if you ask the question, who, who are you or who am I, my, my answer would be a, a recounting of my biography because that's who I am, right? I am this temporal being that has moved through time, through contingency, through decisions, that has made me who I am, has led me to where I, where I have, have come. And human beings as a race are the same sort of way, right? So, so who we are is not merely the abstract philosophical descriptions of who we are, but are in fact who we are in time, right, in history. And that changes really, really the way we look at who we are, right? So in the same sort of way that if you say you want to reform somebody who has, has led a biography that has led them into, into vice and sin, then you have to take into account who they are, what their history is, what their temptations are, what their particular habits are, 
and you and you have to evaluate all of that in order to see a way forward. It, it's the same way with with human race as a whole. It's it's fascinating because as Henry Ford said, history is bunk. And uh, a lot of folk, you'd be surprised, despite the love that the general population has for a good history book and the way in which those often are turned into movies, in the political discourse and at the Capitol, when we try to make historical reference points or analogize or reason by analogy with other historical reference points, uh, it's almost as though a pragmatic way of thinking or one without a deeper anthropological vision of the human person with a common human nature, and maybe there's lessons from the past that we can learn from today, it's almost as though there's not really a strong sense of that, and, and maybe it's rooted in that idea that, or a lack of an understanding that there is this common human nature. Do you, do you experience that in your, your work in the historical field and, and trying to analogize that to uh, political questions? Yeah, yes, absolutely. So, so the, the two sort of temptations with history are one of them is the history's bunk temptation. So that history is just sort of meaningless and it's not really very important. Maybe it's interesting for anecdotal reasons or for little stories or something. The opposite temptation is to reduce everything to history. So it becomes merely, so everything becomes relativized, right? So everything is simply a product of its particular context. Those are two temptations and the truth is, as is almost always the case, found in the mean, right? So there is in fact, human nature that is real and that persists through time, but that nature is temporal, which means it is changing within itself in time. So it takes on different forms, right? What that means is that history is extremely important because it allows us, if we look at the changing thing, the way in which it's changing, so the way in which human nature is changing, it allows us to see into the things that are changing, right? <laughs> so you can see what is fixed or what is what it seems more universal, but only it only kind of becomes exposed when you actually see everything that's changing. So you're right that failing to understand that we are a race that has a nature is a major problem. But it also there's also a problem on the other side, which is failing to understand that we do change as well. Right. This this error is both directions. Indeed. And and that's sort of been one of the great uh, historical dilemmas of philosophy is what is static and what is in flux and how do the two relate? So that's a right, exactly. in interesting way of thinking about it. Thank you for that. You wrote yeah. a book entitled Before Church and State that seems theoretical, but in fact, from my perspective, is actually quite practical. Say a little bit about that book, and then I want to jump into the, the consequences of reimagining these modern binaries that we place upon our view of historical events, such as the distinction between religion and politics, the spiritual and the temporal, the church and the state. But maybe just walk through a, a little bit about what that book is about and what you hope to accomplish with it. It, it is a very detailed study of 13th century France, where where we had a king, St. Louis, who's a saint, <laughs> you know, and so a very holy monarch, and then also at the same time, a very vibrant and alive papacy, very, very holy papacy as well. So it allows us to see what does it look like where the temporal power, or like the power of the laity, and the power of the clergy are in, in, in harmony with each other. All right. Now, the real objective, however, of the book is to challenge the typical narrative of religion and politics that we have, that we all carry around with us as a part of our sort of modern contemporary world, which is that their history has been a movement towards secularization. Basically, the idea would be you look backwards and what you see is a world that's sort of dominated 
by superstition and by religion, and that religion is is meddling in things that doesn't belong, in which it doesn't belong, like politics. And then the story of modern history is the story of the sort of pushing into its rightful place of religion, right? Pushing religion into its rightful place, which is this private, reflective, spiritual, sort of in quotes, right, (laughs) realm that in effect, what it means is it's not really politically or socially relevant. So you get the emergence of a secular, properly political realm. And that narrative is dominant, right? It's the one we sort of all carry around. And so in the book, what I'm trying to argue is that, in fact, what you see in the Middle Ages is not a sort of rival sort of conflict between the secular and the religious, with the religious sort of winning. And so you have a theocracy that's tyrannical. But what you actually see is a conception of social order in which law and grace within which the laity and the clergy are united in a sacramental conception of social order itself so that the merely temporal are elevated and perfected into the spiritual. And so really the temporal requires the spiritual in order to be itself. But at the exact same time, the spiritual power, the spiritual function, the reason why we have the church, the spiritual, is exactly to perfect the temporal. So they are not at war with each other at all, but rather find a unity within their distinction. They don't require one to absorb the other. So there was an integrated vision of society in the Middle Ages, not these modern binaries or splits that we imagine between things now, the spiritual and the temporal. These, in fact, work together, even if distinct, that there were like two swords rather than, than one power operating on their own. It's not a sort of alliance or partnership. In fact, the, the way that would be better to imagine it would be something like the way we imagine the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? So we imagine them as being distinct. We don't think that they're the same. And yet we understand that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old. Right, So the old is brought up into and fulfilled in the new without destroying the old. And that's the sort of way in which the temporal, so the, 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 the temporal world is brought up into the spiritual and fulfilled, but never against what the temporal is. What that means is that to see the temporal as if we want to use a charged word, subordinate to the spiritual, is not to see the temporal as being bossed around by the spiritual, as if the spiritual is just a big temporal power, right? Which is the temptation, right? That's the temptation towards, like, theocracy or something, that the spiritual power, the church, is just a big dictator. But that's not it at all. Rather, the, the, the spiritual power, through its grace, through its teaching, so through the new law, the New Testament, the gospel, is capable of elevating the temporal into what it is always supposed to be, to perfect it in its very nature. And so it's not even a sort of alliance. It really is two movements within one social dynamic, which is a dynamic towards perfection, human perfection. We're speaking with Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones. He is the author of Before Church and State and the forthcoming title, The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. Dr. Jones, why is there so much interest in this story that you have to tell? Your book is a 
sort of minor classic already in the field, and uh, a lot of people think it's incredibly interesting. It's very popular. Why is there an appetite to revisit the terms of the church's engagement with modernity, and what, what do you think is generating the interest in the story you have to tell in that book before Church and State? I think that, in large part, it's because a corollary of my argument is that there's really no such thing as the secular. All right, so it, the way I'm describing this relationship between the spiritual and the temporal is a way of getting at who we are in our natures, anthropologically. And what that means is that the modern agenda is not what it claims to be. So the point would be the idea of having a religiously neutral political space is itself impossible. So basically, if you try that, what you're really doing is proposing an alternative spiritual dynamic within which you're now going to elevate the political into, right? And, and that is no longer Christian, so it becomes something else, right? And, and really what it becomes in a sense is a sort of form of paganism, I think. But the reason why that's highly relevant is what, one of the things I think we've seen in the last few decades and accelerating in the last few years is the breakdown of the credibility of that sort of liberal neutrality, right? So like the gloves have come off or the mask has fallen where we can see, oh, this isn't neutral at all. Like there's an agenda here that has to do with morals. It has to do with the spiritual side of man. It has to do like really at who we are and an ordering of the social organism towards some end, some sort of final end, and that final end is not Christian. <laughs> so that in, in many ways we can think about the modern project as not bringing the goods that it supposedly does bring. It's not, like you said, re- neutral. It doesn't create a field in which people can identify their own goods and pursue them in peace, and the state is the guarantor and the arbiter of peace. In fact, there's really an ideological agenda being pushed. And, and so you can't get away from that integrated vision of questions of the good and the architecture of politics, even if you try. That's right. Yeah. That, like, you're deluding yourself if you think you can do that. It doesn't, it's anthropologically impossible. One of the interesting things about your book is that not only does it really highlight the interesting story of the Middle Ages and, and chronicling someone who went from St. Louis's court all the way to become Pope. But in fact, at least from my perspective, the way it, it clarifies modern history and what modernity is all about, and it makes sense of things. For example, why did the French revolutionaries feel the need to execute Carmelite nuns? You know, what, what danger did they right. pose to the Republic? But when you recognize that there's this integrated social order you see that modernity and the growth of the state and uh, movements and revolution, the sort of the Enlightenment, the revolutionary movements, the 19th century, is really the ongoing attempt to overthrow this integrated social order that <laughs> it's got a, it's got deep roots in, in European and Western civilization. And so it's an it's like it's an on and we're still in the throes of it almost, it seems. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I think we've shifted to another another stage. I think for a long time in modernity, we were in a sort of heretical Christian phase, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So where we were constructing, say, the political ideologies, yeah. liberalism, so- socialism, nationalism, which are all parasitical upon the, the Christian legacy, right? So they're taking, they're, they're dismembering Christianity and, and, and elevating certain components and obscuring other components, which is, of course, the way heresy, heresy works. But heresy 
always fails ultimately, right? And so what I think we're seeing now is even the surpassing of that phase of the sort of ideological phase of modernity and into what is really more recognizable as a, a really a pagan phase, <laughs> mm-hmm. like a return to a pagan phase. Yeah, we um, we had Tom Holland, yeah. uh, author of Dominion, on the show a few weeks back, and that was one oh, of yeah. his points: is that modernity is really sort of an intra-Christian civil war between various sects and and, right. and uh, of Christianity itself, and even even some of these modern debates that we have of uh, of between Christian terminology shorn from their original. Yeah, if their origin is that, that's what we're battling over in many ways. So it was, it's yeah. Pretty- I mean, if you think of something like the French Revolution and its slogan "Liberty, Equality, Fraternity," all three of which are Christian goods, right? Liberty, fraternity, equality. These these come from Christianity, yeah. but it's it's exactly their their divorce from Christianity that then leads to their 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 not only the violence, but then the fracturing of that revolutionary movement into the ideological movements of the 19th and 20th century. And you still have popes writing uh, encyclicals with the entitled Fratelli Tutti about, yeah. <laughs> about human on human fraternity. So uh, what's old right. is ever new again. That's uh, right. Tell us about your new book, which is obviously ambitious, uh, A Tale of Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. Interesting title, though. It's a really, it seems, from looking at the galleys, a, church, a broader church history. So why, do you ha- why is it given that title, A History of Christian Politics? I guess it's somewhat inaccurate. <laughs> what, it, what it really is is a, is a history of Christianity, of the Christian church, with an understanding that that church is political. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it becomes a history of Christian politics because Christianity is political in its, in its nature, right? So, so uh, a church history is a political history. And, and really what I'm arguing, what I'm trying to do there, like you said, ambitiously and perhaps arrogantly, <laughs> I hope not, but perhaps— is a sort of continuation of St. Augustine's City of God, where the plot of human history from creation to up to his own time is couched in terms of a conflict between the City of God, so those communities of men who are looking up towards God in their orientation against the City of Man, or the earthly city, which is those communities who are looking down in their orientation, right? And, And all of human history is really then either a movement toward God and toward heaven, or a movement toward perdition. And those that is the plot line of human history as a whole, right? So church history becomes not the story of a particular institution within human history, and it's also not merely the story of the clergy, although that's an important aspect of it, right? But it becomes, uh, at a broad, in a broader sense, the, the history of humanity as a whole, right? <laughs> like, what, what the history of humanity is, is the history of our fall and our redemption. And that's the Church. And so. I think this is incredibly important, uh, the perspective that you're bringing here, in, in the sense that we've imagined, like you've stated in the books, thinking about the Church as a, quote, religion operating in the secular sphere, and to the extent that the religion grows and is strong, it, it's efficacious, or like you said, it can create a theocracy at the height of its power and in belief. But, but or in, even in the modern context in the political sphere, thinking of the Church as a voluntary association within a secular plane, in the right. public space of civil society, no different really than a bowling club or any other association of like-minded people, 
But what you're challenging us, it seems, to look at is to, to revisit St. Augustine's two cities and think of the church in that greater drama as a society in itself offering a rival kingdom to the city of man. Is that what you're trying to get at and help Absolutely us revisit? Absolutely right, yes. And I, and I really think that that is a return to the biblical narrative, which is, of course, what St. Augustine is doing, right? Because the biblical narrative of mankind, our fall is never a fall into some sort of neutral, secular, abstract world, right? Our fall is a fall into idolatry. It's a fall into temple states and god kings and slave nations, right? And then the whole story of Israel and then the culmination in the Incarnation is the liberation of man from his slavery to what is at the same time political and religious perversion. And that is, that's the biblical narrative, and that's the story that St. Augustine says, and that's what we need to open our eyes to and see that when we leave Christianity as a civilization, we're not leaving it to turn to some sort of rational, the sort of enlightenment dream of a rational utopia, secular utopia. The alternative that we're going to be turning to is that sort of ancient tyranny, right? <laughs> like, that's the option. <laughs> yeah, the city of man works for opposing ends than the city of God, and it's, and it's really the kingdom of Satan, and we just need to own that and recognize that sometimes. That's right. What, uh, you know, the whole framework of the way in which the church has engaged the public square, at least in the United States, you could call it Murrayite, Maritanian, something yeah. of that nature in which, the, you know, the church proposes, we never impose. We go to the to the public thing, the government, the state, and say, we think these laws and policies promote human dignity and the common good. But what, what might be some practical consequences of reimagining Christian political engagement in the modern context along the lines that you're proposing, thinking about understanding the church as the herald of the city of God in history, sometimes in, in opposition to the city of man? What are some practical consequences of that vision that you're proposing? Sure. I mean, I think in our current situation, one immediately is to, is to just to stop thinking of the political realm as a neutral realm and start to understand that the moral and really spiritual ends that it is aimed towards are decisive or can be decisive. That's a fight that we really need to understand is real. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing. Now, another aspect, though, is that, is that part of the analysis is that the creation of states as we have them, these hegemonic monopolies on coercion, these giant administrative bureaucratic operations, are themselves historically contingent creations that are designed really for the implementing of these post-Christian agendas. So I guess what I'm saying is to say that you want a Christian society is not to say you want a Christian theocracy. Right, that you want to get control of that giant bureaucratic, administrative, coercive thing and, and use it. <laughs> Those mm -hmm. aren't the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Because what you want to say is that, no, the conversion of society to Christianity would be at the same time the dismantling of this uh, profoundly oppressive and tyrannical regime, right, or, or, or uh, apparatus, mm -hmm. right? So what that means then is that our conversion individually, in families, in communities, is in many ways, I think, the most decisive political act we can take. 
Because as we convert ourselves away from the loves that animate the city of man, we actually separate ourselves from the city of man's dominance, right? So we become living under their regime, perhaps, but we're no longer really members of it. As the law of grace advances, the yoke of the human or the positive loss, unjust as it sometimes can be, recedes. Is that a good way to sum it up? Yeah, exactly right. And the way in which, the only way in which in which structural, big, big structural, like hot, large scale reform happens or will happen is through the small scale um, reform to truth and justice. Right. So what that and I know that sometimes sounds like a cop out to people, but it, but it really isn't. I think it's anthropologically and theologically the case. That doesn't mean that we don't engage in high-level disputes. We have to, right? We have to engage there. We just have to understand that the real war, the real conflict is happening in the battle for souls, right? And, and that is going to be where it's decisively won or lost. Amen. I wish we could continue this conversation longer. It's absolutely fabulous. Dr. Jones, your work is really, really important and uh, so grateful for your time today. Where can people go to learn more about your work in the St. Paul Center and, and your books, your upcoming book, The Two Cities? Sure. So that book is being published by Emmaus Road, which is the publishing house of the St. Paul Center. So you can go to stpaulcenter.com. And then also newpolity.com. Newpolity is a journal uh, website that I'm in par- a part of. And a lot of our writing and other things, the books are for sale there as well. Great. Uh, newpolity.com is that website and stpaulcenter.com. Dr. Jones, thanks so much for being on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, so this week we have a question about the end of regular session, which wraps up on Monday, May 17th. Listeners are wondering, what happens if legislators and the governor don't come to agreements on certain issues? Would a bill just die, or would they keep working on it? So normal policy bills in the first year of a legislative session, which is one of them, they can carry over into that second year of what's called the legislative biennium. So those bills are still alive and can pass. But if you're in an even year of a legislative session and a policy bill, for example, does not pass, then that bill is dead and it has to be reintroduced in the next legislative biennium. Now, the legislators and the governor have to come up with a budget and otherwise the state goes into shutdown on July 1st. So they need to create a new biennium budget for this upcoming year. And that's what's really consuming a lot of the time and energy of legislators this session. So that's going to be the big thing coming up is that they've got to establish a budget bill for the next biennium for state government and make sure that programs continue to get funded or not funded. And so those are going to be the issues that consume legislators. But if there's a bill that, for example, that you've been working on and uh, advocating for, uh, and it doesn't pass this year in the regular session. can always pass during a special session if one emerges, uh, although it would have to get reintroduced in that special session. And then a, it could pass in the second year of the biennium. So the bills are still live in 2022 as well. 
Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And before we wrap up this week's episode, what do you have in this week's bricklayer segment, ways that people can really start to build that bridge between faith and public life? Well, as Kit said, our regular legislative session is set to wrap up on Monday, May 17th, coming up quickly, which means there is still time for you to reach out to your legislators or maybe connect with them Again, the most effective way to reach them is actually to pick up the phone and call them. You might not get them this year because uh, folks are working remotely in many instances, but leaving a message is important. Sending a handwritten note is great, um, but you'd be surprised how few constituents actually call their legislators on a given issue. I might sound like a broken record when I say that, but it's really true. Um, so it's important to, to reach out and connect them, let them know what you think on key issues. Phone calls and handwritten letters are also great, but emails work as well. In these last days and hours of session, you can go to the Minnesota Catholic Conference Action Center at mncatholic.org slash action center and click on Act Now for any of the alerts listed there. Once you submit your email message, you'll be able to enter your phone number and then be connected to your legislators as well. So our Action Center allows you to make a phone call to your legislators and get patched through to them, but it also allows you to send an email, which is a really great new feature. Each action alert provides you a script so you don't have to worry about what to say. You can always personalize it, but we give you all the tools you need to become a successful advocate on any number of important issues. Again, go to mncatholic.org slash action center and call your legislators and urge them to keep life, dignity, and the common good at the center of any bills that get past the session. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can begin to build a bridge between faith and public life. We're always grateful for your comments, uh, questions, uh, mailbag issues. Send us those at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a very blessed day.